All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing with this cold weather? <laughs> Still trying to figure out what the Texans' response is to cold weather here. My son is wearing shorts still, so um, he has obviously has not figured it out. But it's great to have you here this morning. We're doing a new series here around, and I'll explain all this in just a little bit, because no, we've not gotten a new pulpit. Um, this is a little outrageous, but we're doing a new series and uh, as we start this new series, I have a question for you here as we get going, and that is, have you ever been hurt by someone? I want you to think about that. Have you ever been hurt by someone? Maybe for you, it was your business partner who stole from you, or maybe it was your boss um, who fired you even though it wasn't your problem. Maybe it was your coach who, who cut you from the team even though you deserved to make the team. I think for so many of us, we have these different hurts in our life, and maybe your hurt comes from some sort of abuse, whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse or emotional abuse or spiritual abuse, things that's hard for us even to paint on a Sunday morning, but nevertheless, they happen to you. You've lived through them. This last fall, if you've been paying attention to the news, you know that um, the entertainment industry, government, sports, really culture as a whole has experienced this seismic shift in what's going on in our culture today. Many of you know that it started with a guy by the name of Harvey Weinstein, who has now um, over 50 women have accused him of sexual abuse and misconduct and, and secrets and payouts and cover-ups and it, it was this story that catapulted this Me Too movement into the spotlight, a movement where women are saying this is enough, um, that we can't keep silent over this. You're not alone. This is not okay what men are doing it to us. And these words have echoed through our culture, and it's, it's shaken careers, and it's shaken individual lives. And as of December 17th, there's been 97 men and one woman who's been brought out into the light as a result of this movement. If you've been watching the news, you know it hasn't stopped there. It keeps on going. And the latest is this Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the USA Gymnastics um, doctor, um, who sexually abused over 200 girls. It's just, it's just hard to even comprehend the magnitude of his crimes. And for the last several weeks, we've been hearing these brave victims telling their stories and demanding justice. And when you think about it, when you've been wronged, when you've been hurt, when you've been mistreated, when you've been... Um, abuse, I think that's the reaction for every single one of us. We want justice. We want that other person to pay, and the reality is that that other person needs to pay. But then on the other side of all of this, you have this, this, this side of if you have a secret, if you've done something that you're so ashamed of, if you've done something that you wish there was this time travel in Venice, so you could go back to keep yourself from from actually stepping in and doing that, that horrible thing. If you, if you hold the this, this secret sin inside of your life, there's something different that you want. You want mercy. You want forgiveness. And I think these things are hard for us to talk about, and especially now in our culture when we're seeing these things played out right before us in our headlines every single day. We want justice on one hand, but yet we want mercy on the other 
hand. It's just, it's just such a complicated issue. But do you know that God is a God of justice and of mercy? And so the question becomes, how is this possible? How do we hold justice and mercy together in our lives? Because when you think of really our lives, and as we've seen recently, our careers and our families and our souls really lie in the balance of this question. So what we're going to be doing, we're going to be exploring this and doing this in a series that we're going to be going through the book of Romans. And because over the past 2,000 years, and I'll show you this in just a little bit, the book of Romans has had such a dramatic effect in people's lives. God has used the book of Romans to renew and to refresh and to influence literally billions of people's lives in very dramatic ways. John Calvin who played a major role in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, he wrote this about the book of Romans. He said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road to open, to help him understand the entire Bible. And it's so true. The, the book of Romans is the basic handbook on Christianity. Every single major Christian issue and theology is in the book of Romans, which is, makes it so complex which makes it a lot of times hard for us to understand. Richard Halbertson said this way. He said, in a very basic sense, Western civilization is a byproduct of Paul's letter to the Romans. Nothing was written by man that had a greater impact on modern history. Isn't that interesting? That one book could have that much impact, but the reality is true. When you study history, you can look and see that it's had a very dramatic effect on history. It's literally changed the course of history. Augustine became a Christian because of the book of Romans. Martin um, Luther started the Reformation in 1517 because of the book of Romans. John Wesley started the Wesleyan revivals in 1738 because of the book of Romans. A great Swiss Bible commentator said it this way. He says, every great revival in history that ever started can somehow be related to this book. Isn't that interesting? A book that's you know, just right there at your fingertips, a book that maybe you skim through, a book maybe you even know some verses by memory, or a book that you kind of avoid because it has all of these big issues and it's hard to understand. But this book has dramatically affected history. And so my prayer as we go through this series that, that God will use this book of Romans in your life and in my life and in our church as a whole, just as he's used it time and time and time again, and generation after generation, to shift people who are stuck in a rut, to shift people who have the ho-hums, to shift people who are frustrated, to shift people who are hurting, and to start a revival in our hearts. And so I want to encourage you, as we're doing this series, I want to encourage you to be reading the book of Romans on your own. Don't just wait till we get here on a Sunday morning to go through the book of Romans, but I want, you to, I want to encourage you to be reading it on your own, because what I'm going to be doing over the next seven weeks leading into Easter is I'm going to take one chapter each week over the next seven weeks, and we're going to look at just at that chapter. And so you can get a head start um, this next week by reading chapter two for yourself and just kind of letting that digest, and then we'll talk about it next Sunday. So this morning, if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to start here in chapter one, Romans chapter one. And when you look at this chapter, it's, uh, it's in the New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, and then Acts and Romans is where it is. And when you look at the first chapter, it's broken up into three sections. Uh, the first section, the first seven verses, we see the Apostle Paul, he's describing himself, and he's describing what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And then the second section, the next ten verses... The Apostle Paul, he, he's describing his relationships with the Romans people and how much he loves them and, 
and how much he desires for them to have a relationship with God because it's the power of the message of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done that allows us and enables us to live here in this world. Those are the first two sections, which brings us to the third section where really Paul jumps into the deep end of social and theological controversy. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll get here in verse 18. It says this. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, what I want you to understand here, and this really begins to help you understand how Paul's writing this letter to the Roman people here, because in this section, he's laying it out kind of like a courtroom scene, and the case that's before the court is mankind's guilt or innocence before God. The charge is that mankind has deliberately rejected God. The prosecutor, well, that's Paul himself. The accused is all humanity, and the defense, well, Paul says that mankind, in verse 20, is actually without excuse. And so the verdict, and we'll talk about that just in a little bit, but basically the verdict that Paul gives is that mankind is guilty. And so Paul begins to unveil this and begin to bring his evidence before the court, this evidence for this verdict. Look again, verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If you're taking notes, underline the words wrath of God. Because here, the Apostle Paul, he's just, he begins to describe and talk about this issue called the wrath of God. And so for some of you, when you think of the wrath of God, what comes to mind are lightning bolts and a guy getting fried right there on the spot. 
It's hellfire and brimstone. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. It's judgment day. It's hell. It's a lot of times how we think about the wrath of God. And in reality, that's part of the wrath of God. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Because here in verse 18, he's using the present tense. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed. In other words, it's happening right now. All around you, in your life, in your world, in my life, in my world, the wrath of God is being revealed right now. Now think about that, because obviously we don't see hellfire and brimstone falling from the heavens onto the, onto the earth. So obviously that's not what he's talking about here. So the question becomes, well then, how is the wrath of God being revealed today? Well, first it's important for you to understand that our idea of wrath and God's idea of wrath are completely different. In the original language that this was written, in the Greek language, there's two words for wrath. The first one is thermos, where we get the word thermometer. And that, that word thermos literally means a blast of anger, sudden temper, explosive anger. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in this verse. He uses the different word. He uses the Greek word orge, which literally means controlled anger. In other words, it's settled. It's not impulsive. Now, that itself might be, may be a new concept for you, this idea that God actually get, gets angry. But what you need to understand is that even though God gets angry, he never loses control. And what God gets angry at, he gets angry at sin. It's because of sin that God gets angry. And the reason is because sin destroys life. Sin messes and twists creation. It damages what it is that God has made. Think about it this way. Say, say you have, a, um, if you have a, a little girl who is kidnapped and raped and killed. What is your reaction to that going to be? Are you going to be angry about that? I would suggest that you would be. Otherwise, I'd question whether or not you actually love your little girl. Well, think about the same thing in terms of God because God made this amazing world. And yet he sees it being wrecked by wars and hatred and violence and intolerance and injustice and, and prejudice. That's what sin does. It wrecks what it is that God created. And the second thing you need to understand about the wrath of God is the object of his wrath. Verse 18 again says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. And so God's wrath is revealed against godlessness and wickedness. Now let me give you definitions for both of those. First of all, godlessness. Because godlessness means living as if God doesn't exist. Let me say it again. Godlessness is living as if God doesn't exist, which means that's not, not necessarily atheism. It doesn't mean that you don't believe in God. Many people believe in God, but they just don't act like he exists. He's out there somewhere, but he really doesn't have anything to do with me. The reality that he exists doesn't really impact how I live. And so godlessness is living as if God doesn't exist. Wickedness, on the other hand, means living without any rules. So, in other words, it's doing your own thing. It's being your own judge. It's selfishness. It's doing unto others before they do unto you. That's what wickedness is. And so godlessness 
is a sin against God, and wickedness is a sin against man. And so if you picture this courtroom scene that Paul is kind of creating here, so what he's talking about here is that Paul is saying that, man, he's guilty. He's guilty on all counts of godlessness. He's guilty on all counts of wickedness. That's what he's describing here in these verses. And then the next five verses, he begins to argue then the evidence for why mankind is guilty of godlessness. Look at this in verse 19 again. It says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be lies, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Now here the Apostle Paul, he's, he's describing something here that God has revealed himself to mankind in three ways. And so here, the Apostle Paul begins to unravel here the evidence that he brings before the court. And the first piece of evidence is Exhibit A, which is, it's unmistakable. This is his first evidence that he produces here that this is why mankind is guilty of godlessness. It's unmistakable. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So he's talking, he said, Let's look, it's plain to see. If you just look, if you open your eyes, it's plain to see. And what he's talking about is nature. He's talking about creation. Right? Psalms 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever heard people say, maybe you said so, say the same thing yourself, where, where you hear this, I, I feel so close to God when I'm out in nature. You heard that before? Maybe you even you felt it before. I, I, just, I, I feel so close to God when I'm out, when I'm walking in the mountains, when I'm on, a, when I'm on the lake, or whatever it might be. The, the reason is because God is seen through nature. It's un mistakable is what Paul is talking about here. God has re- he's revealed himself that way. And if you remember when John, um, John um, Glenn orbited the earth, and if you're old enough to, re- to remember that, on February 20th, 1962, John Glenn orbited the earth three times. And the first thing that he said when he came back to earth, he said this, he said, I saw God everywhere. I saw his glory. I felt his presence, his closeness. I saw his majesty. He saw it from a different perspective as he orbited the earth. And so God is revealed in nature. It's unmistakable. This, was his, this is Paul's exhibit A. This is his proof. This is why we're guilty here. And then he goes on to exhibit B, which is, it's universal. It's universal, he says. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made. And so here the Apostle Paul, he's describing him. The evidence here is overwhelming, he says. It's overwhelming. All creation points to the fact that there is a God. And so whether you're in Africa or Asia or Europe or America, whether you're educated or uneducated, everybody can look up and see the same stars. You can see all of creation here and realize it's obvious. It's unmistakable. It's universal. You don't have to be an American to find God. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul says to that, 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 that what God has done is made know himself known to everyone. It's universal, which then brings me then to his, his third exhibit, and that's exhibit C, and that is it's undeniable. It's undeniable. Verse 20, so that men are without excuse. And so Paul's saying there's no defense here. It's an airtight case. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. The New English Bible says it this way. There's no possible defense for their conduct. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what about the, the aborigines who've never heard about God? What about those people who live in Outer Pago Pago who've never had a Bible in their hands? What about these people? Well, the answer to that is that, that it's true. They may not have a full understanding of God, but the Apostle Paul saying is that all human beings are without excuse because of the fact, because of creation, if man is left alone by himself, he'll come to the same conclusion that a creator exists. There's something bigger than me out here. Did you know that archaeologists have never been able to find a civilization of atheists? It's really interesting. They go back and they can, they can find cities without walls. They can find cities without buildings. They can find cities without public or areas. But they've never found a civilization that, was, that did not have a temple or some sort of worship area. Why? Because this is how God created us. The Bible says that God put eternity in our hearts. That causes us to look beyond ourselves and to realize there's something bigger than me out here. That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 20. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, the divine nature, have been clearly seen. And so God's revealed himself to us. Now, you might not want to admit it that God has revealed himself because then that makes you accountable. But nevertheless, he's revealed himself to us. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says we're guilty on all accounts of godlessness. And so he's presenting this case before the courts there. And so because of this, because of godlessness in our lives, when we repress and reject and replace God, then it creates all these different problems in our life. Because here's the thing, folks. If we get our vertical relationship wrong, all of our horizontal relationships become problematic as well. And the reason is because godlessness leads to wickedness. In other words, godlessness is the root, wickedness is then the fruit. And so whenever I live like there is no God, which by the way, you can go in and out of it every single day of your life. One moment here, you're in Sunday morning, you're thinking about God and you're living as if he does exist. As you're driving back on Highway 71 and somebody swerves out in front of you, you can live like God doesn't exist. And the things that come out of your mouth and your antics and your behavior acts as if God doesn't exist. We can go in and out of this, by the way. And so what happens, though, is that, that godlessness then leads to wickedness. And so then in the next 11 verses, Apostle Paul begins to describe all the wickedness that's then in mankind. And then he leads up here to these verses. Look at this in verse 24. It says, therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their heart. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. 
Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. There's a couple things here. Now, notice because of the evidence of wickedness in us, and remember, wickedness comes in because of godlessness. Godlessness is the root. Wickedness is the fruit. So when I get this relationship wrong with God, then this all around me starts falling apart. And so because of that, because wickedness begins to grow inside of me, and I have all the evidence of wickedness in my life, then the Apostle Paul uses these words again and again and again. These four words, God gave them over. God gave them over. Now, what is he talking about here? What does it mean that God gives somebody over? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that these people can't be saved. It doesn't mean that there's no hope. It doesn't mean that God quits loving them. Let me kind of illustrate it this way. Let's say you have um, a 19-year-old son who's still living in your home. He's 19. He's past the age of, 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 of adulthood. He's, you know, he's a legal adult, and he's still living in your home, and he's making a mess of his life. He's involved with all sorts of drugs and, and alcohol, and he keeps coming home at, at night, and he's drunk and under all sorts of influence, and he throws up all over your living room floor, and he's just making a mess. He's living a, a wild, licentious, immoral life. And so you come to your son, and you tell your son, son, you're 19 years old. You're a legal adult, and I can no longer run your life as your dad. I can no longer control you and determine what you do and what you don't. You're, you're a legal adult. But here's the thing. If you want to stay in this house, you have to abide by our rules. It's your choice. You, if, you, if you don't want to live by these rules, you don't have to live in this house, but you're not going to wreck our life as well. It's your choice. And so your son has a choice. What he's going to do? And so he chooses to walk out. So what's going on here? You, as the parent, you're giving your son over to the lifestyle that he has chosen. Do you want to? No. Do you get any joy out of it? No. But he's old enough to make his own choices, to live out what it is that he wants. And so you give him over to the choices that he makes. That's what God does with us. And so when we see the phrase, God gave them over, it simply means that God allows us to reap the results of our own choices. Now listen to me, folks, because this, is, this, is, this, is, this will mess you up if you let it in a good and difficult way. Because when it says that God gave them over, it means that God allows us to reap the results of our own choices. He lets you have what you think you want. He goes ahead and lets you have it. You ask for it, and now you get it, which means you can make a mess of your life and God won't stop you. That's what he's talking about here. And the reason is because he's given you a free will. You have a choice. He's not going to stop you. He's given you free reign over your life to ruin your life. Listen, folks, this is what the wrath of God in verse 18 is all about. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. In other words, God's allowing us to do our own thing. And so we reap the results of what it is that we think we want to do. That's the wrath of God working in our lives. And the reality is you can see the wrath of God now all around you. 
Everywhere you look, you can see the wrath of God in broken homes and shattered lives and all sorts of diseases and sickness. That's the wrath of God. We get ourselves in a mess, and God doesn't bail us out. We reap what we sow. That's the wrath of God. See, folks, this is why God doesn't have to throw hellfire and brimstone down here on the world. The effects of living without God creates its own problems and destructions in our life. That's his wrath. And so Paul presents this basically to the courts and describes this and gives all these different evidences. And so he comes then to this verdict in verse 32. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such a thing deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. In other words, he's saying God himself has found us guilty. And so it's God then that says, you're guilty on all charges of godlessness. You're guilty on all charges of wickedness. Every single one of us. If we'll just look in our own life, you'll see the same evidence of godlessness living as if God doesn't exist. The same evidences of wickedness, living our life unto ourselves, doing our own thing, being our own judge, selfishness. And then he says that guilty verdict, it comes then with the sentence of death. That that is what we deserve and that's what begins to happen then in our lives. Now I want you to look at this because this is how the Apostle Paul ends chapter 1. Chapter 1 ends with a gavel coming down and the words guilty are declared. This is the picture that Paul presents here in Romans chapter 1. This is the story of our lives. And i got to tell you something. As a pastor, this is not how I want to end the chapter. And it's interesting to me because everything in me wants to somehow turn this to make this more palatable for you. To somehow turn this in some sort of rah-rah, isn't God good type of message here for you. I don't know how it is with you, but I always love stories that have a good ending. I love watching movies. I love the tension. I love the conflict. But boy, do I like it when it gets turned and it, it all comes together. I like movies that way that have a good ending. I mean, I don't like the Titanic when everybody drowns. I don't, I don't like movies that end that way. I don't like sitcoms that leave you hanging after 30 minutes and they don't wrap it up. I like things to be wrapped up in a nice clean bow. That's how I like it. But Paul leaves us with this. The gavel comes down and the words guilty are declared over our lives. And the more I sat on this and prayed about this this week, the more I realized how there's something about this that's so important for every single one of us. Because I think for so many of us, we want to rush past justice, and we very quickly want to enter into mercy for our own lives, right? We want everybody else to experience justice. But for ourselves, we want to rush past justice very quickly because I need mercy. I want, I want this to be resolved. I want to feel better about me. In other words, we skip over the weightiness of our own guilt. We don't want to think about, we don't want to think about our own, our own guilty verdict of godlessness. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, how often in any given day do I live my life as if God doesn't exist? The decisions I make 
are I'm making them as if God doesn't exist. The things I look at, the things that come out of my mouth, I'm living as if God doesn't exist. We want to skip over the weightiness of that guiltiness. We want to skip over the weightiness of the guilty verdict of wickedness in our own life, the fruit of godlessness in our We want to skip over that very quickly because we want to rush to forgiveness. I want to feel better. I want God just to, to forgive me here. But I don't know if you've been watching the trial that was been going on with, with Dr. Larry Nasser and all these almost, almost uh, over 150 girls and women coming up and telling their impact statements in court. It's, I mean, talk about heaviness there. But part of, his just, part of the system of justice there is he's having to listen to the impact that he made on every one of these girls and who are now, a lot of them are young women at this point, what happened to her. And this, this about a, a little over a week ago, the last one shared her impact statement. Her name is Rachel Din Hollander, and she was the first one two years ago who brought the accusations against Dr. Larry Nasser. After all these years, these girls just were frozen in fear and frozen in their own guilt, and she was the first one two years ago to bring these accusations. She was chosen to be the last one to share her impact statements of his sexual abuse in her life. And at the end of her statement, she said this. I want you to listen to this statement. In our early hearing, she, she describes, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on this basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the, def the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness has not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what have have what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says that it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends the grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience a soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. If you would, I want you to just close your eyes. Because I think if we would be honest with ourselves, I think every one of us would have to admit that there's areas in our own lives where we're living as if God doesn't exist. And many of us are experiencing the effects of God giving us over to the consequences of our sins. And I think every one of us have to admit there's areas in our own life where 
we're living in this wickedness, the fruit of godlessness, where we're living our lives just unto ourselves, really being our own God and being our own judge. And many of us are experiencing then the effects of God giving us over to the consequences of our sins. But this is why Jesus came. This is why he came. I can't offer you absolution for what you've done. Only Jesus can do that, and that's why we need Jesus. And so you might have a secret that you're having a hard time opening up about. You might have a habitual sin that keeps tripping you up. Would you allow just this morning, this moment, just the weightiness of this to sit on you? Would you allow the weightiness of your own guilty verdict just to sit on you here for a moment? The weightiness of your own godlessness, living your life as if God doesn't exist. The weightiness of your own wickedness, living your life outside of God's rules, doing your own thing, being your own judge. Would you just allow that to sit here for don't be in a hurry just to shrug it off to because it's uncomfortable but those things that have been your own secrets those things that you've hidden your own your own guilt of godlessness your own guilt of wickedness just to let that sit for a moment with the realization of justice impending that the gavel has come down and declared you are guilty you can try to hide it from those around you. You can try to even pretend like it doesn't exist for yourself. But the reality is that God sees it. And it's his gavel that's come down and declared that you're guilty. But as well, in this moment, would you allow just the presence of God, his Holy Spirit, to come and begin to stir in your life because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so you're not too far out there that God's hand can't grab a hold of you and pull you close to his heart. That he hasn't given up on you, that he is faithful even when you are faithless. And right here in this moment, as you look at the weightiness of the own, your own junk in your life, your own guilty verdict, would you now turn to the one who's able to bring mercy alongside of justice, who's able to bring forgiveness to you, and let him begin to stir in your heart. I want to ask you just to do something, if you would, and if you're physically able, I want to ask you just if you go to your knees, just slip out of your chair and just, I want you to just take this moment right here. You know, there's so many different positions of worship. This is one that we don't go to very often. But I think it's a, 
a position where we really acknowledge our own guilt. And so right there where you are, I want you to just, I want to lead you in, in praying here. And just pray this out loud with me. Say, God, today, I realize my own guilt. I recognize my own godlessness. I recognize my own wickedness. And so today, I repent for my godlessness. I repent for trying to live my life without you. I repent for living my life as if you didn't exist. And I repent for my wickedness. I repent for doing my own thing. I repent for being my own judge. I repent for my selfishness. I recognize that I'm guilty on all of these accounts. And so I reach out to you and I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you would forgive me for my godlessness. And I ask that you would forgive me for my wickedness. Jesus, come in and cleanse my life. Change me and help me to take responsibility for the damage that I have done and help me to move forward down the path that you have for my life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go back into worship and I wanna encourage you, don't hurry from this position, but just to let that settle in you as the team just continues to, to lead us in worship. We have communion here as well. Come up as you want to have communion and do that on your own time as we worship here. The prayer team will also be up front. On Psalms 32. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, my, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Maybe you know exactly how that feels when you carry those secrets, when you carry those sins, when you carry that junk, that godlessness and wickedness in you. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And I'll counsel you with my loving eye on you. But do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all 
you who are upright in heart. You know, I'm reminded here this morning that we just jumped into the deep end of a whole bunch of stuff, and this is how Paul does it. And he'll begin to dissect it as we go along in all of this. But, you know, maybe here for you this morning, you know, you don't even have the, the first idea of what to do with this. You know, it's maybe you know about God, maybe you know about Jesus, but you've never had really that personal encounter with him. Because let me tell you something, that's what changes everything. And that's what takes it out of a religious context into a very loving, amazing thing that he does in our life. And the Bible describes for us, it's very, very simple, is that if we kind of acknowledge just this own guiltiness, that's where it starts. We realize just how guilty we are. We acknowledge this, that he's faithful and just then to forgive us of our sins. He rushes to us. Just as the story of the prodigal son, as he comes home, he rushes to us and and then if we would then make that choice, as I gave you that illustration of that 19-year-old son, if we would make that choice and say, you know, I realize I, I'm making a mess of my life. I want to come back into the home. I want to come back into the family. And the Bible says it's very simple. If you'll just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, you confess that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that God sent him here in your stead to to die a very excruciating death for your sin, for your guilty verdict. If you'll just confess with your own mouth that Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the open door that starts this amazing journey then that you have with God who wants to come and walk with you and be a part of all of this. I want to encourage you, if you've never really prayed that, if you've never really made those decisions, these men and women up front are part of your prayer team. They're, they're just here, and they'll pray with you. They'll walk you through this and pray with you to see that happen. And they're here also to pray for all different sorts of things. And like I said, I would love to be able to just tie up this nice little bow, but that's not what Paul does here in this chapter. We'll keep moving along this. I encourage you to pray. Um, and read Romans as we go through this. And I want to encourage you, like I said before, God has used this book of Romans to ignite revival throughout the centuries past. And so why not now? Why not again, God, do it in your life, in my life, in this hill country? Why not God ignite something as we go through this, something that will bring revelation in your own life. You would, I want you to grab a hold of the person's hand beside you across the aisle, kind of scoot in with each other. And, and I want you just to pray and over the people that are around you, in front of you, beside you, people you may know, people you may not know. But for whatever reason, God has brought us here together for this moment. And so, Father, we do. We pray for the people on our left and our right here today. And we thank you for this appointment that you that you have had with us. And so, Father, we pray for the people in front of us and behind us and the left and right, that, God, that you would work your wonder in them. God, as they move through this day and through this week, that, God, your presence would be on them, that they would have an attentiveness, that you are there with them, that not only do you exist, but you want to be involved with the intricacies and the details of their day. And so, Father, I pray that faith would be stirred in every single man and woman and young person in this room. 
That, God, that you would revive our hearts and our souls, our spirits, that you would revive our bodies to move forward in what you have for us. God, we truly give you our hearts. We give you our lives here today. And we ask, God, that you would move us forward in all that you have for us. Let your blessing reside on the people around us and in our lives. We pray it, we speak it, and declare it now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Stop.